What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Tom and Jay look at some of the following stories. Tom has a four-part blog post series on universities behaving badly, the KU hiring and firing of Les Miles. What do Betty Davis and Jim Deloach say, fasten your seatbelts for? Jim Deloach explains in CCI. Do you have a money laundering reporting officer? Allie Noor explains why you need one in Experts League. How to avoid an OIG investigation? Sarah Croft enlightens us in Grand Jury Blog. Why do SPACs give compliance officers fits? Aaron Nicodemus in Compliance Week. Risk Management and IT Security in Work From Home Era. Sam Abadar in Risk and Compliance Matters. Building Bridges Between Compliance and Business Development. Mike Volkoff in Crime, Corruption, and Compliance. There were three significant CCO hires this week and podcast events and more, all on This Week in FCPA. Voice of Compliance back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. This week in FCPA, episode 245, week ending March 26, 2021, the Sister Jean edition. As March Madness has descended upon the bubble, Sister Jean leads Loyola of Chicago into the Sweet 16, and I'm riding her all the way to the Final Four, Jay. <laughs> but we're back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. What say you? I say I'm dying to hear about universities behaving badly. What do you have for our first story, Tom? So, uh, Jay, this is uh, something that really caught my eye. And uh, as you know, our good friend Candace Tal has been in, uh, founder of InfoTal, has been in the executive search business for, I'll just say, 20 plus years, so as to not completely date her. But she's done it a long time. And I was uh, able to visit with her a little bit about the hiring and firing of Les Miles at Kansas University. I think our listeners, or at least if you're a sports fan, will recall Les Miles won an NCAA championship at LSU. But what was not known was he was engaging in sexual harassment with female co-heads at the time. And in 2013, an investigation was done, and the uh, university uh, sanctioned him, required him to take sexual harassment training. They didn't fire him, required him to take sexual harassment training. And get this, Jay. He was banned for being alone with a female co-ed. Not in his room, not in the office, not in the car, everywhere. So how bad was he? Pretty bad. At any rate, LSU didn't fire him uh, for that. They fired him because he couldn't win anymore. And uh, a couple of years uh, later, he was hired at Kansas. Well, in February, uh, some people in the fourth estate, got wind that of the settlement. So they went to court, uh, filed an Open Meetings Act or Open Records request in Louisiana, 
there was a big to-do over whether LSU would have to release the report because after the Miles report, they did a more comprehensive report and found uh, a dysfunctional Title IX department and a complete um, imbroglio, my new favorite word this week, uh, around <laughs> sexual harassment at LSU and the football team. So LSU, of course, didn't want those out. But the court ordered them to release both reports, and Kansas uh, claimed that they'd never heard that uh, Les Miles had done anything nefarious, harassing, indecent, or anything else which would require him to uh, uh, be terminated, other than the fact I think he had about a 3-30 and 30 record. Maybe that's not unfair. Maybe it was 3-20. and 20. At any rate, um, he was put on uh, uh, paid leave, and three days later he was fired by Kansas. Kansas claimed, uh, their athletic director claimed he did an extensive, extensive and thorough due diligence, and none of this came up. In fact, he even asked Les Miles, hey, Les, anything we didn't know about? And Les said, nah, not really. And uh, when the report came out, he asked Les, hey, Les, anything in this report we need to know about? And he goes, nah, not really. It's, it's all BS. I, I didn't do any of it, even if it's written in the report and on the internet, so therefore true. And uh, so it was just a completely shameful affair. The LSU board was, some board members were aware of it, uh, but uh, not the full board. Uh, LSU keeping Miles in uh, in spite of the actions he engaged in, uh, I think was a big misstep by LSU. Miles was fired. The athletic director who hired him, left the university to pursue other uh, opportunities. And here's this shows how bad the shakeout was, Jay. The president of LSU, who was not present when the original Miles report was issued, he came on board shortly after it was issued, and the board had decided not to fire him, the board in, con- in conjunction with the prior president. He had subsequently left and gone to Oregon State. Well, he was fired by Oregon State because the Oregon State – State, uh, the Senate and the student body was so outraged uh, that uh, this was going on, uh, even tangential to his watch, uh, he uh, resigned to pursue op- other opportunities as well. And as Candace pointed out, she gave me a lot of uh, great insights throughout the podcast series or blog post series, I should say. And as she pointed out, the cost is uh, dr- dramatic and extensive. Uh, for LSU, the cost was uh, humiliation in the public arena and the cost of all of these investigations and buying Miles out of his contract when they could have fired him for cause. In fact, the then athletic director wanted to terminate him for cause and he was overruled. For Kansas, uh, this is a, just a complete disaster. They are universally one of the world's worst football teams, not just the U.S. I think there's some Texas high school teams that could compete with them. Nevertheless, uh, Kansas University uh, came out just horrible in this. They obviously did no due diligence. The director wanted his buddy, Miles. They'd known each other since the 90s, perhaps even uh, actually the 80s, uh, because Miles coached coached under Bo Schembechler at Michigan. And um, it shows really what happens when old white guys get together. They hire other old white guys. And uh, the damage to Kansas, Les Myers will never be hired again as a football coach. Jeff Long should never be hired again as an athletic director. I don't know what's going to happen to the uh, former president of LSU, F. Alexander King. 
uh, and whether he will uh, get another position. But nobody came out of this looking good. Everybody took a huge black eye. And I still can't believe the sanction of he cannot be alone with a co-ed, period. So um, it was a really interesting check out the blog post site on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog. And uh, I've got some really cool graphics to go along with it. So check it out. Great. Next up, Tom, uh, we're going to check in with Corporate Compliance Insights. Uh, Protivity's Jim Deloach asks, will business disruption continue throughout the 2020s? And you say both Bet Davis, Betty Davis and Jim Deloach say, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. The results from the latest survey by Protivity and NC State are in. Protivity's Jim Deloach discusses the findings that may portend for organizations in the decade ahead. Overall, on a global basis, the top 10 risks for the next decade suggest a rapidly changing business environment and a need to prepare for the future. As executives peer ahead to 2030, five of the top 10 risks are operational in nature, but the top three risks are macroeconomic and strategic. Here they are. Number one, adoption of digital technologies may require new skills or significant efforts to upskill or reskill your existing employee base. Two, impact of regulatory change and scrutiny on operational resilience products and services. Three, rapid speed of disruptive innovation may outpace the organization's ability to complete. Compete, rather. Number four, leadership succession challenges and the ability to attract and retain top talent. Five, privacy, identity management, and information security. Number six, substitute products or services may arise that affect the business model. Seven, sustaining customer loyalty and retention may be difficult to achieve as customers' preferences and demographic shifts of all. Eight, ability to compete with born digital and other competitors. Nine, ability to utilize data analytics and big data to achieve market intelligence. And 10, cyber threat threats. As a decade of disruption, these risks foretell disruption in 10 years ahead. The future of work may be the defining opportunity and risk of the decade. When executives think a decade out, they're concerned that their organizations may not be able to upskill or reskill countless millions of displaced employees. Regulatory risk is elevated when viewed through the lens of a longer time horizon. Here are some specific risks to look for. Global leaders foresee a disruptive decade fueled by innovation that creates new markets, eventually disrupting existing markets, displacing established incumbents that failed to adapt. The war for talent rages on in the third decade of the 21st century. The fourth-ranked risk reflects a long-term concern regarding the sourcing and retention of top talent needed to compete and thrive in a disruptive environment. No one expects data privacy and security, cybersecurity to diminish. Data privacy concerns promise to become only more complex in the digital age. Consistent with our disruptive theme, business leaders expect the emergence of substitute products or services that may affect the viability of their chosen business model. Choices and alternatives for consumers are expected to expand over the next decade, creating uncertainty as to the continued viability of current product and service offerings. 
The overarching theme of unprecedented accelerated change and disruptive innovations over the next decade may drastically alter consumer behavior. Customer loyalty could prove to be fleeting as preferences and demographics shifts evolve. Building organizational resilience is an imperative over the next decade. There is an interesting overlap between the top 10 lists of 2021 and 2020 and 2030. Knowledge of markets and customer wins. The ninth ranked risk for 2030 is an operational one. Leaders are concerned about having sufficient data analytics and big data skills to achieve needed intelligence to differentiate products in the marketplace. Senior executives and their boards may want to consider these risks in evaluating the risk oversight and strategic and risk management focus and thinking long-term. Disruptive change is a double-edged sword. It presents an opportunity to take a business to another level. Conversely, it also can be a sign of the beginning of the end. Whichever side of the change curve management and board find themselves, few would disagree that disruptive change itself cannot be taken lightly, and the key is to embrace it as inevitable during what may become known as disruptive 20s. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, do you know what an MLRO is? You mean a money laundering reporting officer? Wow. You do. It's a compliance professional who oversees a financial institutions or uh, commercial operations, anti-money laundering uh, function. It is a requirement now in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, an MLRO does a variety of things. Um, they uh, detect transactions related to any crime. They scrutinize suspicious transactions. They review policies and procedures in your AML program. They execute training, and then they collaborate with supervisory authority. Uh, the uh, Who should be in AML? Well, there's no regulatory requirements, but much as a compliance officer, you need to have authority to handle the matters and report it up if needed. You need to be able to assess your money laundering risks, be able to do risk management, and then you need the legal aspects of the law. So uh, I found it really interesting. Oh, and this uh, article comes to us from Ali Noor uh, from the Experts League, or Aliyah Noor. Uh, she posts some good stuff. We'll link to it in the show notes, so definitely check it out. But I found it really interesting, Jay, that once again we see a series of innovations uh, from outside the ABC space which should migrate to commercial corporations. And as money laundering becomes, I don't want to say more prevalent, but the, the risks increase when the banks and other financial institutions clamp down on it, the bad guys go to soft other soft targets or softer targets. And unfortunately, commercial companies are the softer targets when it comes to money laundering. So uh, this may be something a chief compliance officer wants to incorporate into his or her portfolio or have a designated expert in, expert in the company, unless you think this doesn't happen. Uh, yesterday, we had, a, had another guilty plea in the ongoing Petavesa Sitco case, where a Sitco a procurement officer had been uh, paid over $7 million in bribes uh, by companies to get Sitco business. Uh, he was in the U.S. Um, he was really an idiot. And it went on until 2019. So it's still going on in the U.S., Corporations are still paying and paying bribes, and uh, you need to, to have that sort of expertise in-house, Jay. So next up, Tom, we have something from a friend of the podcast, Sarah Kropf, writing in her Grand Jury blog. 
and she gives some great advice on how to avoid an OIG investigation. Hindsight is 2020. In retrospect, we can often see what an OIG investigation's clients could have done to prevent that investigation. The three ideas below won't prevent every investigation, but they can help mitigate the most serious consequences to your career or your company. First, if you are a federal employee, contact your agency's ethics officer to discuss questions about how to handle a particular situation. Each division of an agency has a designated agency ethics official, or DAEO, who can answer your questions. It is likely there's also an alternative designated agency ethics officer, an ADAEO, who is the deputy. The point is, there's always someone in your agency with whom you can discuss your dilemma and ask for advice. The U.S. Office of Government Ethics, OGE, has a page that lists the highest ethics official in each agency. You can always contact the person and he or she will get back in touch with you and direct you to the right person in your division. The best process is to put your question in writing. If you have a phone call with the ethics official, then take contemporaneous notes and consider sending the ethics official a follow-up email documenting your conversation. Second, seek advice from your agency's Office of General Counsel. It's quite possible that the OGC will simply refer you to the ethics official, but it's helpful to have a documented paper trail when you sought OGC's advice about the right course of action. And finally, third, let your supervisor know what you're doing. This is particularly relevant where the matter seems, even where the matter seems relatively minor. It cannot hurt to get your supervisor's input on an issue. Even if your supervisor may not know the ethics or other rules in great detail, he or she should know well enough to tell you to contact the ethics official or the OGC. And at least you will not have hidden the conduct, which is always a helpful fact during an investigation later. Now, here's something, Tom, that will warm your heart. In case you can't tell, here's the takeaway. Disclose, disclose, disclose. Keeping things secret or looking like you are makes OIG agents suspicious. The fact is most federal employees never had to contact their agency's ethics officials and are intimidated by the process. You shouldn't be. The role of the ethics official is to answer these types of questions, and there are no dumb questions. Often, Sarah's clients have been told their supervisor, at least some of the facts, but sometimes the employee and the supervisor have different recollections. That's why putting things in writing can be helpful down the road. And here's a bonus tip. When you start working at your agency, you almost certainly received ethics training. You should go back and dig up those materials from the training. They often cover a range of topics, but those materials may help you identify red flags in particular situation. And if you see any red flags, then follow up with those above. The U.S. Office of Government Ethics, as we said before, the OGE, has a list of 14 principles that are easy to read to see if anything you're planning to do is potentially problematic. The problem, of course, is that you're looking at your conduct through a lens that you are not doing something wrong. The OIG will look at your conduct through a lens that you are doing something wrong, and these 14 principles are vague enough that they may not answer your questions. OIGs will track down the materials for the ethics training you receive to prove that you knew what you were doing was wrong. And if you were trained that you cannot give a federal contact to a relative's company, then the OIG will use the training material to conclude that it just wasn't an innocent mistake. As usual, we link to the story in the show notes. 
and you can click on through and find the list of 14 principles. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, it's uh, probably a little-known fact, but you have uh, many worn many hats in your professional career, and uh, uh, investment banker is one of those hats. And I've always wanted to ask, when you were wearing that hat, did you mm-hmm. have to deal with SPACs? Um, not an not an, a, 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 an actual transaction, but SPACs were very big in the early uh, 21st century. So I know what the SPAC is, a special purpose acquisition fund. Exactly. And that really was uh, the theme that I wanted to talk about in this article around SPACs from Aaron Nicodemus, over at, our good friend over at Compliance Week. And he talks about some of the compliance concerns around SPACs as they have gotten a lot of traction recently and uh, certainly a renewed interest. And I find it uh, interesting, particularly since the shift of the early days of SPACs, where we now have SOX 404 controls. Obviously, we have a much more robust anti-corruption compliance controls and and much more robust anti-corruption compliance uh, programs and enforcement but uh, SPACs really, uh, I think, pre- provide or present rather some unique challenges for the compliance officer. If you're a compliance officer at a firm and manages that launches SPACs, you could expect both regulators and investors to begin digging through your policies, procedures, and disclosures for potential missteps and misalignments. Conflicts of interest, insider trading risks, et cetera, are there. But the basic problem is that when you set up a SPAC, it's generally run by one company, and their uh, goal is obviously to, to put entities in there and uh, make money from that exercise. And that may be antithetical to the board of directors' role to the shareholders to make sure that a company uh, not only follows the rules and regulations but now have, has a compliance program in place. The Delaware Supreme Court has made that clear. So it could be um, – Lots of different moving parts. What concerns me, Jay, is if you are an investor in a SPAC, what visibility do you have into the potential companies that may your SPAC may purchase? Is it a black hole? Is it simply we're going to buy X amount of stock and put it in the SPAC? Is, um, uh, if you're the company, conversely, what's the source of the SPAC's money? Do you have to do due diligence in that direction if you're being bought? So to me, it really raises some I don't want to say troubling questions because I'm pretty sure the questions can be answered with an appropriate level of scrutiny, but some different focus questions that typically a compliance officer would have to answer in a mergers and acquisitions context and could present some additional compliance uh, risk that could bubble up later if it turns out that anything uh, nefarious was going on. So I just would uh, caution uh, any compliance professionals if you're dealing with SPACs uh, check up on uh, the literature. Several of us have written about some of these unique challenges, and Aaron talks about them in his article, and you need to be be aware of them and make sure you have visibility on both sides of the transaction. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next up, we're going to check in with Navix Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog. Sam Abadair writes about risk management and IT security and the work-from-home era. The shift to remote work resulting from the COVID pandemic has increased the scope of risk and thus broadened the area of responsibility for risk managers. In addition to complying with regulators, which continue to prolif- regulations which continue to proliferate, 
Risk is coming from more places than ever before. And this high-risk environment is challenging for compliance on IT professionals who have to keep track of more areas of risk in this new W from F or work from home environment. Cyber attackers have seized this opportunity and significantly expanded their campaigns at a time when organizations are most vulnerable. The landscape of business risk in 2021 will be more varied, dangerous, and prolific than in the past. The pandemic-induced remote work environment will continue to prompt a significant number of IT-related risks, going far beyond the many compliance, those that many compliance professionals are used to. IT frameworks manage and communicate risk data. There are many different information security frameworks that compliance officers can use to adopt to help align technical aspects and language of information security to compliance and business risk. Adopting a technology framework to translate information security into compliance issues, and this will help compliance officers understand, measure, report on, and act to protect the organization from heightened risks of a work-from-home environment. Here's some steps that you can take. First, join forces with the IT department. A progressive risk-based approach requires compliance and IT departments to collaborate closely together. Compliance has likely already mapped compliance requirements to processes, and now it's time to map IT assets to software and software to processes. Two, manage what matters. Not all IT events, processes, and compliance objectives need the same investment in risk management. Work with IT, risk management, and business leadership to help understand what is most important, where your risk management efforts exist today, and where you need to make adjustments going forward. Three, map cybersecurity risks to controls and operations. Map IT processes to business processes and objectives. These mappings can translate information security findings to business and compliance terms and impacts. And four, Contextualize risk data to support all lines of your business. With a structure and flow of information in place between compliance and IT, you will have an avenue to report and analyze cybersecurity data and efficiencies. It also becomes an easier task to report risk to different lines of businesses, such as legal operations and product development. Refer to the controls mapping to translate risk information and support and protect other lines of business. The past year has demonstrated how interconnected and global risk really is. The landscape of business risk in 2021 will be more varied, dangerous, and prolific than in the past. The pandemic-induced remote workforce will continue to prompt a significant number of information security risks going far beyond what many compliance professionals may be used to and may be far beyond what we can imagine. On the other hand, if there was ever a good year to convince leadership and the board to prioritize risk management initiatives, 2021 is certainly an opportunity to do so. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have a story from our good friend and everything compliance colleague, Mike Volkoff. And when I originally read the title in the first paragraph, I immediately thought of the well-known Howard Sklar Maxism, water is wet, um, because the article is about compliance needing to build bridges to the BD folks, business development for you lawyers out there who've never been in business. Now, Jay, you have been in business, and we've talked about one of your hats um, in the investment banking world, and the relationship between BD and compliance is not always the best. 
And uh, but as I read Mike's article, uh, he laid out some some actually tactical and strategic steps that a compliance officer could take to build a better relationship with the BD folks. Number one is is have some small victories. Uh, of course, don't be Dr. No from the land of no, but to the extent you can uh, provide uh, quick, efficient services to the business people, that will get you noticed. So if a due diligence request comes in at four o'clock on Friday and you're getting ready to head out and your response is, I'll check it out next week, you know, maybe you could go the extra mile early on. Because once you get a reputation of doing that, uh, that will stick with you and you'll get known as a guy or gal who can get things done. But that will lead to more opportunities to partner with the business folks because then they will have the trust to bring you in on a transaction so that you don't get a call at four o'clock on Friday. They call you Monday morning at eight and said, hey, we're looking to do this by the end of uh, the week or maybe even next week. And that's where you can show you've made some, it's where you can see you've made some real progress and show uh, that to anyone who's who's looking. The better you can demonstrate uh, that, you'll have a successful culture, uh, and that will give you a competitive edge. And you can work closely with the, the business folks to ensure that the compliance requirements do not become an obstacle. Same, I think, is true for third-party uh, risk management. Uh, and if you can develop a relationship with your third parties. You can be there and try to hopefully not simply detect any wrongdoing, but really prevent and even proactively uh, incorporate uh, changes in your program, which will help it. So I commend this article to you. As I said, uh, the topic is really uh, channeling your inner Howard Sklar-ism. The water is wet. But Mike lays out some specific strategies and tactics you can take away as a compliance officer going forward. Thanks, Tong. Um, Next up, Fox Corp, Tesla, and First Energy Corp have all brought on new compliance professionals. What does it mean? Dylan Tokar writing in the Wall Street Journal Risk Compliance Journal and Brian Baxter writing in Bloomberg Law give us some light on the subject matter. First off, Nicholas Trutanich, I hope I haven't butchered it too badly, who served as a top prosecutor in Nevada under former President Donald Trump, has been hired by the Fox Corporation to become the new chief ethics and compliance officer. Mr. Trutinich's expertise in gambling regulation was one of the reasons for his appointment, according to the company's new general counsel. Fox is one of several broadcasters that have made a push into the sports gambling business. In 2019, the company agreed to buy 4.99% of the online sports betting company Stars Group for $236 million. Additionally, Fox has faced a number of high-profile legal challenges over the past few years. The company's news division has received regulatory inquiries stemming from allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination, according to a securities disclosure. It was also sued in February by voting machine company Smartmatic USA Corp for what the company alleges were defamatory online comments about its products in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. And last year, two former Fox Sports executives were charged with participating in an alleged scheme to pay millions of dollars in bribes to officials at FIFA, the World Soccer Federation, in exchange for broadcast rights that they have both pleaded non-guilty. 
Next story, this comes to us from Brian Baxter. Tesla taps Walmart ethics compliance chief for new legal role. David Searle, a former federal prosecutor who joined, joined Walmart in 2019, became the deputy general counsel and senior director of compliance at Tesla. Searle's move to Tesla comes as his new employer grapples with a recently unsealed lawsuit accusing it of refusing to hire law department leaders willing to stand up to the voluble co-founder and CEO Elon Musk. The lawsuit filed March 8th against Tesla in Delaware Chancery Court by investor Chase Garrity alleges that the Palo Alto, California-based company and its board have, quote, consistently failed to ensure that Tesla has an independent general counsel who can provide advice untainted by Musk. Garrity's complaint cites the departure of three different Tesla legal chiefs in 2019. It also claims that Musk frequently meddled with the general counsel's activities and that he violated the terms of a 2019 settlement with the Security and Exchange Commission, which mandated that Tesla hire a so-called Twitter sitter to monitor its CEO social media posts. Bloomberg Law reported last year on the rotating cast of lawyers that have taken place over Tesla's top legal chair, one held by Prescott since December 2019, and the exit of former general counsel Jonathan Chang. Searle's recruitment, first reported Monday by Law 360, comes as Tesla appears to be reshaping its in-house legal and compliance staff. Tesla, which faced scrutiny last year for its treatment of workers in California at the start of the corona pandemic, also elevated former Associate General Counsel for Compliance and Head of North America's Human Resources, Valerie Capers Workman, in July to be its Vice President of People. And back now to Dylan Tokar in the Risk and Compliance Journal. You'll remember the story from us speaking about it towards the end of last year. First Energy appoints Chief Compliance Officer amid bribery probe. First Energy Corp. said Monday that Antonio Fernandez will serve as its new Chief Compliance Officer effective April 12th as the Ohio utility works to put a bribery scandal behind it. Mr. Fernandez, an industry veteran, will oversee the utility's efforts to reform its ethics and compliance function as the company deals with multiple federal probes. A former First Energy subsidiary allegedly paid $60 million to an entity that former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder used to support a $1.5 billion bailout, which included state subsidiary payments to aid the subsidiary's nuclear plants, according to an FBI affidavit. First Energy last year fired several high-ranking executives. The announcement Monday appears to be the latest step by the company's board to alleviate concerns among investors, regulators, and other stakeholders following the controversy around the nuclear plant bailout bill. The bribery scandal involving First Energy became public when Mr. Householder and several associates were arrested in July 2020 and charged with racketeering. In an annual report last month, First Energy said it was cooperating with the investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of Ohio and the SEC, as well as with Audit and Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, let me ask. Okay. Have you ever done business with Iran? No, not that I know of. Uh have you ever seen any companies do business with Iran? Yes. Uh, were those companies you worked for? No. 
Well, good, because Iran is one of the places you really shouldn't be doing business and you shouldn't have been doing business with them for a long time. And our friend and colleague, Doug Cornelius, your uh, uh, fellow New Englander, wrote a really interesting story this week on compliance building about a, a U.S. company which got into trouble doing business not directly with Iran, but with a intermediary. And the U.S. company really put their head in the sand here. Uh, they uh, exported 21 shipments of air pressure switches valued at $687,000 for four years from 2013 to 2017 to a European company, which subsequently re-exported them to Japan. There were clear sides of a um, clear red flags, which would have made, if you'd even bothered to look, it was clear something nefarious was going on. Number one, European company asked the U.S. trade partner to remove the quote made in USA end quote level uh, label. Uh, the company engaged outside counsel uh, who told them they were violating the law. They entered into a sales representative agreement uh, with this European trading partner that explicitly listed Iran as a target for sales. They met with um, this European national uh, company and European, excuse me, Iranian nationals at trade conferences. And so um, and they even ask the European partner whether they, uh, um, the European partner asked if they could do business with Iran, and the U.S. company said no. Uh, but that's all they did. So really, uh, I'm not even sure this rises to the level of a Howard Sklarism. Uh, the water is wet because this is so self-evident and so self-obvious um, but Doug is, is correct in bringing it to our attention because it shows, Jay, you have to be ever vigilant and that um, your compliance officer needs to have the ability to have visibility into who is selling your products and then to raise that to senior management and say, guys, somebody's going to need to get fitted for an orange jumpsuit here if, if we continue to do this. So uh, interesting reminder from Doug. It's good to see him back uh, uh, blogging uh, during the week and uh, never ever do business with Iran. Got it. So uh, here's my word for the day. There's been a paucity of FCPA enforcement in Q1. Is that good or bad? Uh, Harry Casson's asking the question in the FCPA blog. Here's some numbers and stats. Uh, since the start of 2021, four companies have disclosed new investigations including Braskem and Toyota. During the same period a year ago, only three companies disclosed new FCPA-related investigations. Three companies have closed their FCPA-related investigations in 2021, two by declination and one by enforcement action. And the only enforcement action, Deutsche Bank AG, agreed to pay both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission $122.9 in penalties and, and disgorgements. By this time in 2020, three companies had already resolved FCPA investigations. Uber received a DOJ declination. Airbus paid $2 billion to U.S. authorities as part of their global settlement. Cardinal, Cardinal Health paid the SEC $8.8 million. And uh, this was related to offenses related to a Chinese subsidiary. By this time last year, the DOJ and the SEC 
had collected an astounding $1.87 billion more for FCPA-related offenses. Yes, 2020 was an unusual year. It kicked off with Airbus that earned them top spot on the FCPA blog top 10. And last year also ended with a new enforcement action for Goldman Sachs' $3.3 billion settlement for its 1MDB-related offenses. So why has there been less enforcement this year? Why have the feds collected so little from FCPA defendants? Maybe these aren't the right questions to be asking. The FCPA as an industry has become a behemoth. The average settlement in 2020 topped $534 million or half a billion dollars. Are monetary penalties the best way to evaluate enforcement? If yes, then maybe the DOJ and the SEC crushed it last year, but this year they may be woefully behind. Or should we instead be watching the industry for something else? Maybe a quiet start to the year is a good sign of things. It might be evidence that 15 years of enforcement, compliance programs, and training are finally paying dividends. Maybe we're seeing the result of the cumulative and consistent effort of companies promoting compliance worldwide. Or it might just be the calm before the storm. There's a new administration finding its footing in D.C., and there are at least 110 com companies with open and ongoing investigations. As we know, hope springs eternal, and Harry wonders what the next three quarters to 2021 will bring. Tom, what kind of podcast do we have on this week's broadcast? So, Jay, we had our fourth episode of The Compliance Life with Rob Chestnut, former chief ethics officer at Airbnb. And in this uh, book, or rather this episode, Rob talked about his book and then also talked about uh, where compliance is headed down the road. And rather amazingly, um, I won't reveal his age. Let's just say it's close to mine. Uh, he can still play basketball with his teenage son. Uh, I mean, I can't go down a step without my knees hurting. So uh, we got a little uh, <laughs> tutorial on how a uh, older gentleman plays basketball with a teenage son. So that was cool. Uh, on uh, the two Microsoft podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, um, uh, uncovering hidden risks and voices of data protection on voices of data protection, we talked about uh, information governance and records management. And this is area, Jay, that I think many compliance professionals are aware of, but they really don't spend a lot of time thinking about. So information governance is absolutely critical to your compliance program and uncovering hidden risks. They, uh, our hosts, Raman uh, Kalin and Talamir, talk about how far insider risk management programs have come. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce yet another podcast has joined the Compliance Podcast Network, Coffee and Regs, by the company CSS. And in this podcast, it's hosted by uh, Natalie Silverman. Natalie is a former radio voice, so it's cool to have kind of that that crossover now moving into podcasts. And she visits, visited with Allison Taylor and Victoria Olson to discuss a compliance playbook for regulatory change. Now, her company focuses on reg tech, but I really found the playbook concept really interesting in listening to the pod. So check that out. Um, why don't you tell us about the new Integrity Through Compliance pod that went up this week, Jay? Sure. So, uh, as you know, uh, I work with a company called Affiliated Monitors Incorporated, and two of our managing directors, Mikhail Reeder-Gordon and Eric Feldman, continued with part two on their discussion of trends in independent, independent monitoring and what they predict for the year ahead. So, we have links here in the show notes 
to the Integrity Through Compliance podcast. Uh, the new one is episode five, but if you want to go back to the beginning, start with episode four and then move forward. Uh, Tom, we do have one uh, coupon code to use with our listeners. So why don't you tell them about what they can get with Fox 25? Sure, Jay. So we, uh, the Compliance Handbook Second Edition, I'm going to humbly say the top compliance handbook in the world telling you how to design, create, and implement a best practices compliance program is available for pre-sale through its publisher, LexisNexis. You can get a discount uh, from the um, um, Lexis, and we've got the code FOX25. I think that's a pretty cool code. We'll also link to it. Jay, over the, I've also got a podcast entitled The Compliance Handbook, and two weeks ago we had the Gwick ladies, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine with Policies and Procedures. This week we had Amy Bernard Bond talking about the intersection of HR and compliance. It's uh, some fabulous podcasts. They are video podcasts, so they're up on YouTube, although the audio version is also available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Check out any of those uh, pods. Uh, some great stuff from Amy this week, as you would expect. Uh, she also talks about her promotability index. She's going to be coming out with a book on that topic in early June. So uh, watch and listen for that because we're going to be talking about that more. So, um, Jay, I think that kind of wraps up my part of This Week in FCPA. Great. So uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Tom Fox, who's the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So uh, on behalf of Tom, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 245 for the week ending March 26, 2021, the Sister Jean edition. Uh, we hope you will enjoy the tournament over the weekend, and we look forward to speaking with you next week when we look at all the stories on This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.